Good morning. This is the Lou Rockwell Show, and how great it is to have as our guest this morning, Mr. Doug Casey. What do we say about Doug Casey? Well, he's the international man. He's an uh, international speculator, very successful speculator, uh, New York Times number one best-selling author of uh, books on in- that combine investing and anarcho-capitalism and philosophy and um, sell very well, and um, people treasure treasure Doug Casey. He's the founder of Casey Research. He's a he's a famous speaker. Runs famous uh, investment conferences. Doug Casey is a very impressive guy in our world and uh, in the whole world. But he started to do something different. He's the author of a new novel, maybe the beginning of a series of novels. Uh, and the new novel is called Speculator High Ground. And Doug writes this book in conjunction with uh, his co-author John Hunt, who's a physician, who a uh, free market physician, of course, an anarcho-capitalist physician, and somebody who also does charitable work medical work in Liberia. So, Doug, uh, tell us, first of all, after having written so many successful nonfiction books, why are you writing a novel? Well, it's a totally different group of people, or not totally, but a largely different group of people that read fiction from nonfiction. So, if you're an author, I don't need to tell you this, you, you want to get the word of what, you're, what you think is right out. And, uh, Fiction is, um, in many ways, a much broader net than nonfiction, number one. So that's one thing. Number two, there are a lot of things you can say in fiction that you really don't even dare say in nonfiction. You have plausible deniability for <laughs> terribly politically incorrect thoughts if, you, if, if a character says it in a fiction novel. So that's the real reason. And uh, I guess another reason might be that uh, uh, philosophy goes down a lot smoother if you can show people what a character is doing as opposed to tell people, which is what you have to do in a nonfiction book. So it's all of these things, Lou. And uh, this first book, Speculator, which has just been released today, actually, it's um, the first of a series of six or maybe even seven novels where we're attempting to reform the unjustly besmirched reputations of six uh, politically highly incorrect occupations. And what's the first occupation? Well, that's the subject of this one, Speculator. And uh, it's all about our hero, who's 23 years old as the book opens, uh, because I wish I'd read a book like this when I was 23. It might have changed my life uh, for the better, actually. Um, our hero, uh, who starts out with just a few thousand dollars, gets into a mining stock, mining exploration stock, uh, and, and they are, incidentally, the most volatile class of securities on the planet. They regularly go 10 to 1, 50 to 1, 100 to 1. Uh, I personally owned a stock that went 1,000 to 1. So it happens. So uh, he goes on a, a mining uh, tour to Africa, to the uh, country of Gondwana, and uh, discovers that the company that's made him a lot of money, made him a millionaire, is actually a, a huge fraud. But that's exactly how he, he turned his 10000 into a million, and that's how he turns the million into $200 million, uh, after he finds out it's a fraud. So... The book is about, uh, it's kind of an education in the mining business, the mining exploration business, 
geology, speculation. A big part of the book, of course, is uh, what it's like to be on the ground in Africa. And uh, a big part of the book is a bush war in Africa with child soldiers and all the rest of it. So I'm sure everybody wants to know how to put together their own child soldier army in uh, <laughs> nowhere in Africa. Uh, only the U.S. government would be interested in that. Well, actually, they do get very interested in it, and they wind up stealing. Charles makes $200 million, and they steal it from him. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but um, that's what happens, and uh, we explain how it happens, and that leads us to how he gets his money back in the next novel, where he becomes a drug lord. Because in this book, this book is a morality tale in many ways, even though there are some people that get killed. They're just people that need killing. So can you do that and still be on the ethical high ground? Uh, I'd say yes. Uh, certainly, by the time we get to the fifth novel in the series, which is called Warlord, everybody thinks warlords are horrible people. Uh, we show that our hero, Charles, uh, this is years in the future now, uh, is a uh, very ethical warlord. It takes a a shithole country in Africa and turns it into Singapore on steroids. So what we're trying to do is show that uh, you can be all these supposedly terrible things and be a good guy, a lovable guy. Doug, your books have a teaching purpose. I mean, you're obviously you want to tell a great story. You want a story that grips people and makes them want to read this book and, of course, the, su the subsequent books. Uh, but like Ayn Rand, you have a teaching purpose in your novels, too. Yes, uh, Although we've omitted, how many how many pages was John Gold's speech? Was it eighty or hundred? I don't know. Yeah, no, it was gigantic. It, it, was, it was really. Uh, I mean, it, it was great, but it was it was nonfiction disguised as fiction uh, in the form of that speech. But uh, we've done a lot of this type of thing, uh, explaining uh, the right and wrong uh, things and the ethics of. Of things, but uh, I think in much, much more uh, palatable, bite-sized pieces. But it is a morality tale because, uh, you know, I've read a lot of uh, adventure novels, uh, Jack Reacher novels, things like that. And, um, you know, what they lack is a moral backbone where it's fun to watch the hero do things and uh, learn something while he's doing it. But um, most of these novels that you buy in airports are morally ambivalent. So I don't know if anybody's done a book like this since Atlas Shrugged in the form of a novel. Uh, there probably have been. Maybe, um, maybe people like L. Neal Smith or uh, uh, Neil Shulman have. I'm not sure. But that's been a while ago. Who else is writing libertarian novels these days, Lou? Just you, Doug. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I, well, well, I guess I've got it all to myself. That must be why why we won the uh, Leonard Reed Prize for the best libertarian novel this year, because they're, they're not thick underfoot. <laughs> so, Doug, you've obviously, uh, you've traveled all over the world. You've lived in so many different places. I was fascinated recently by your reports on your, your exploits in Zimbabwe. Tell me, does Charles Knight have any relationship to uh, to you? Well, you know, they say that everybody's first novel is autobiographical. 
And um, there's a certain element of truth to all of this, because uh, most of the book, most of Speculator, takes place in Africa. And um, actually, John Hunt has also spent a lot of time in Africa. So we kind of put our heads together on this, and uh, it's a composite of uh, John's and my experiences in the continent. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's not made up stuff. I mean, it's it's, it's real stuff. And I, two, uh, some of my favorite characters in the book actually are the white mercenaries, who are I find very sympathetic. They're definitely bad boys, but kind of sympathetic bad boys. A little bit in the way that Al Swearingen was in Deadwood, mm-hmm. which, which incidentally I think is the best, uh, one of the best things that's been on, ever been on television. Uh, certainly one of the best things since Had a Half Gun Will Travel. You remember that? Sure, great, great show. Yes, of course. Yeah, so our hero Charles Knight models himself after the character Paladin, and um, that's, that's part of the book too. It's uh, in some ways. Uh, treatise on education because uh, Charles is a high school dropout. And uh, as you know, I feel that having gone to college for four years was a misallocation of four (laughs) years of my time and a bunch of my parents' money. And of course, I went to college in the 60s and uh, it was a lot cheaper then in in both absolute and absolutely in relative terms too. I mean, spend all that money probably financed by debt to go to college, I think is idiocy, unless you're going to uh, learn a trade like engineering or uh, doctoring or lawyering. Well, okay, that makes sense. But um, most people don't do that. Most uh, most people go to college taking ridiculous things so they can educate themselves. So in the book, we kind of lay out a philosophy of education and how Charles, who becomes worth $200 million dollars, isn't even a high school graduate. Well, you know, Doug, I, I keep wondering how long parents are going to pay, how long students are going to put themselves into horrendous debt in order to go to some place where they're, they're taught a bunch of lies. And unless, as you say, they're studying dentistry or pharmacy or, or something of that sort, if they're studying liberal arts and coming out with gigantic debt and just having been indoctrinated in some combination of stupidity and evil, um, I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think that the whole higher ed system uh, could come down and be replaced. I've got to hope that it collapses because the structure itself is so rotten at this point. This, what do they call these things? Safe spaces and, and trigger points. And, uh, <laughs> and this, yes. this, this stuff actually defies. If it didn't exist, if somebody made it up as fiction, nobody would believe it because it would be too incredible. So. Uh, in a way, I hope that, uh, am I sure I believe this? I kind of hope that the government uh, decides to give everybody a free college education, because at that point, it will manifestly be worth nothing, and it will collapse the universities, which, are, which need collapsing at this point. Um, this is all going to end very badly. I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, in fact, the seventh novel in this series, I'm thinking about entitling it, You Can Profit from the Coming Collapse of Western Civilization, (laughs) because uh, things are just going so badly for civilization itself at this point that uh, I I just don't know how this is going to end, but it just seems like it's going to have a nasty ending. I mean, 
I don't know if you thought about this much, but <clears throat> I wouldn't doubt, uh, although it sounds outrageous to say this, that the U.S. could have something like a civil war uh, in, in, in the next generation. It's not impossible. That's right. No, it's not impossible at all. Well, this is another reason, of course, why I think it makes sense to be internationally diversified. And I suggest that somebody, and I know that there's a lot of young people that are probably listening to this, uh, if they're going to college, I'd cut their losses and save and take the money that they'd save and uh, spend it traveling. You'll get a vastly better education and uh, have much better adventures for everything that you might want in the way of drinking and partying if you want to do that, but that's not the main thing. And uh, use that money that you, that you fritter away on college as capital to start a business. And I suggest Africa, which is why we picked Africa as the site for speculator, because um, uh, it's, it's a continent where nobody goes, nobody visits, nobody travels there, really. Well, they might take a safari in South Africa, but that's not the real Africa. So, I mean, you can go to all these, any of these 50 countries in Africa, and, uh, you know, it can really change your life for the better, I think. It's not like going to France or England. Everybody does that. And things that everybody does are not worth doing, essentially, at least when it comes to this type of thing, I believe. Well, Doug, you've lived in a lot of countries. You've made money in a lot of countries. Uh, so the fact that you're thinking that there's money to be made for young people in Africa, does is this book... I, I won't say it's a how-to manual on that particular point, but um, it, it could be an inspiration to young people to consider uh, doing business in Africa. Yes, that's exactly what was in the back of my mind in in writing this. It's that uh, I'm trying to. Uh, everybody tries to influence reality. Everybody tries to change the world, but uh, I think it's actually practical for somebody who's even 23, like Charles Knight is in the book, to uh, to go to some bizarre, godforsaken hellhole in Africa and um, do something because he's so unusual and uh, out of the ordinary for the people that live in Africa to um, put himself in a position, to, in other words, to be a gigantic fish in a small pond Whereas here, if you stay in in the U.S. or Canada or Europe, you're just like many, many millions of other people would have a similar background and similar knowledge and similar connections. So you don't have any marginal advantage. You're on a level playing field. And uh, if you want to make money, I think you've got to get on a an unlevel playing field where it's tilted to your advantage. So that's why I'm saying that, and that's what Charles does in the book. Do you think, uh, Doug, do you want to name a country or two in Africa that you think people might consider? I know you're writing about a, a mythical country in your novel, but um, where if, if you had a, uh, a young relative of 23 who was inspired by this book and wanted to go explore things, what would you suggest? Where would I go? Um, South Africa is way too developed. I wouldn't go there. It depends on how rough and ready you want to be, how wild and crazy you want to be. You can go from very mellow countries like Namibia, gigantic country, I don't know, the size of bigger than Texas, 
and uh, only 2 million people, uh, most of them in one area. Uh, the whole country looks like Utah, still got a lot of Europeans and German extraction. That's very mellow, very nice, very interesting, uh, and weird in its own way. I, I go there if you don't want to go off too far off the deep end. I would have said Mozambique, uh, which I like a lot, uh, which is on the Indian Ocean as opposed to the Atlantic Ocean. Once again, a country the size of California, 13 million people, but they seem to be slipping back into a civil war. So maybe that's going off too much off the deep end. Uh, Congo, really interesting. Maybe too much off the deep end. I'll tell you an interesting place uh, that I was just... Um, there most recently, and I've been there a lot over the years, is Zimbabwe. It's not dangerous. It's got a lot going for it, even though it's the bottom of the barrel economically because of the criminal mismanagement of the Mugabe government for the last 30 years. But uh, places where times are tough uh, and there's not many people looking for opportunities, that's where the opportunities lie. So, okay, Namibia, Zimbabwe... Those are um, mellow, interesting, nice places to go. Or you can go off the super deep end. You can go to Nigeria, which uh, I don't know how many people they have now. 200 billion? Maybe more. Maybe you have 225 million. Nobody knows. Uh, the north is Muslim, the south. You know, but um, the thing, thing people have to do is get on a plane and explore. In West Africa, the most mellow place to go, uh, the easiest gradient, I say, is Ghana. And um, I'll tell you something. When I, years ago, I met a guy in Washington, D.C., when I was selling group insurance. And I met a guy named Yehuda Ben Yehuda. And uh, I liked him, and he liked me. I never sold him an insurance policy. It didn't matter. But he was an old Africa hand. And he told me, he said, he said, Mr. Casey, if you go to the Gold Coast, which is what he called it, it has just recently changed to Ghana, and you spend five years there, I promise you you'll have 5% of everything going into the country and 5% of everything going out of the country at the end of that time. And I should have followed his advice. <laughs> and I, but I was going to follow his advice. I, in those days, I just wanted to put together $10,000 cash, which would keep me going, you know, uh, backpacking and living in student hostels and this kind of thing and go around Africa. But, you know, other things in life got in the way and I didn't know what I knew now and I should have done that. My whole life would have been different. But there were a lot of things that happened to me in Africa where if I'd taken a left turn as opposed to a right turn, my whole life would have been different. Better, worse, I don't know. It's hard to say. But uh, exotically different is for sure. Well, Doug, I assume you're not going to be, unfortunately, writing a book about your experiences in Africa. Uh, but if people want to learn at least a, a uh, get a taste of what you experienced and what you find fascinating and profitable in that carton in that continent, uh, they need to read your novel, starting with Speculator High Ground. This is a, a new place for you. I think the fact that uh, you know so much, you've traveled so much. You're uh, cultured and educated despite having gone to college and uh, a very successful businessman and investor. So uh, my bet is that uh, this book is going to be very successful. And uh, I certainly wish you all high sales on Amazon and elsewhere. 
And uh, congratulations on doing this. Congratulations on the next six or seven that are coming or f five or six. And um, congratulations on all you do. Anybody who knows anything about Doug Casey knows anything he writes, anything he's got a hand in is fascinating. And you can learn and enjoy it at the same time, which is uh, not the most usual experience in life. Well, thanks, Lou. And, and I appreciate the recommendation because I really do think it's a a very good novel and uh, enjoyable to read and I hope it changes a few people's lives for the better so we'll see how the market uh, receives it and rewards <laughs> it in next year Tremendous Doug thanks so much for coming on the show today and thank you Lou bye bye well, thanks so much for listening to The Lou Rockwell Show today. Take a look at all the podcasts. There have been hundreds of them. There's a link on the LRC front page. Thank you. Thank you.